Are you guys ready? Yes, sir. I'm ready. Welcome back, everybody, to the Savage Chromecast. We are your hosts. I am Jonathan. I'm Josh. And I'm Luke. And this is Season 9, Episode 5. Yes. Can you believe it? Queen of the Black Coast, the adaptation. That's right. We're back. We're back sailing the the seven seas with (laughs) with Belit this time as a captain instead of Rusty Burke. Belit it. (laughs) 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 Well, good night, everybody. Pirate cackles. (laughs) (laughs) We're very excited to be talking to you about another piratical tale starring our favorite queen of the Black Coast, Belit, the the pirate queen and conan and their adventures together we're going to be talking a little bit about the original story and then we're going to talk about some of the comic book adaptations of it because we are big nerds that's right it's true it's true it's super true how are you guys doing are you ready for another show yeah man we're mowing through the season i was actually just pulling up the uh the the list like where we're at like at this point i think we're we're in the the home stretch We've only got like a like we're we're over the hump anyway. Like we've got like four mm-hmm. episodes, maybe five episodes. So, so this is a good sort of halfway mark. Yeah, it's exciting, uh, and I think this one in particular is going to be fun to talk about because there have been so many different interpretations of Belit uh, across the years, across the different comic books, and so yeah, I'm eager to get into this. But first, let's talk about the alcoholic beverages that we are imbibing. Right you on. should go first. So we have, uh, I've got a, a, a bottle, a flip topper of uh, batch number 33 pub cider that, uh, that we've got open. And we've got a, uh, another, another flip topper over there of my white grape piment that, uh, that we can get into too. So we've got a couple. That's very irony of you to have your own brewed stuff. And they're they're pretty like these uh these Trader Joe's like flip tops are the best man. The ginger beer flip tops. If you're a home brewer, snag those during the the holiday season, and you you will want not for a means <laughs> to to store your 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 ales and your ciders. They're a good color. It's the the green tint to the bottle. Yeah, it looks they, like something you would find on a pirate ship. Yeah, and they clean up so good. They're so easy. I don't know, man. At this point, I've squirreled away about a dozen of them, and they're really they're useful. So, And then, Josh, you pressed some stuff too, right? I did. I've got a little bit of West 6th Amber in the cooler there, but uh, my, my throat has been a little scratchy here the last couple days. I don't know if it's allergies or I'm fighting off a cold, but right now I'm, uh, I'm having some hauls <laughs> and uh, some, <laughs> some water. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What about you there, John? Uh, bourbon. I'm doing some bourbon tonight. Some Elijah Craig myself. Nice. Yeah, it's pretty fancy. I know. No, that's good stuff, man. I agree. Yeah, yeah. So those are the things that we are drinking. Shall we do one things before we get into our piratey content? Yeah, man. Good music. Yeah. Luke, I believe that you volunteered to go first. I you do. Are the first one thing. I want to get in and get out with my one thing because I don't want to talk too much about it. I just want to talk about the thing that I've been sort of thinking about over the past couple of days. Uh, 
and it's so last <laughs> last episode my one thing was the season finale of, of veep and it kind of detoured into uh you guys wanted to talk about game of thrones <laughs> uh uh my my one thing this episode is going to be i guess game of thrones because i've been thinking about the 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 wrap up to it all and i guess the the I I was using this word in my head today, like the 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 overlap or the intersectionality of like George R R Martin and Tolkien and Howard. I think you can you can think about Tolkien and Howard with the final stretch of the Game of Thrones television show. So I would just if I would just encourage people to to. to to mull that over in their head and i don't really want to talk anymore about it don't want to spoil anything don't want to say anything other than it's pretty cool that we're talking about the pirate queen belit mm-hmm. here in this episode and i think there's lots of connections that can be made with uh adventure and the the merits of civilization and barbarism and exploration of the unknown yes and i'll just leave it at that Awesome. That's you want great. people to at you with their thoughts. I don't. I don't want to get into any sort of conversations with, with with rando <laughs> like fans of Game of Thrones. <laughs> I'll talk to you guys about Game of Thrones, but I don't know, man. It, like that. That's it. We don't even. We don't. Yeah, Game of Thrones is was a lot of was a lot of good times and criticisms and and thumbs ups and thumbs downs and all those kinds of things. But it uh, it had some good thinking points at the end and that's yeah that's that yeah that was my one thing that's a good one darby dragons <laughs> I, I would not mind having a uh a, a discussion about game of thrones at some point yeah yeah if, if if you were so inclined i would be inclined to do that dude i treasure i treasure your your conversations and i treasure your views even if i don't necessarily always agree with them it's because we're, we're friends it's because we're because we can have a socratic interaction we can have a conversation we can hold more than one viewpoint in our minds at the same time we're like a prism like a prism like a flat circle (laughs) (laughs) what i'm hearing is it sounds like we're going to do a road to the throne at some point in time the game of thrones podcast no man there's not one of those out there is there never ever ever has there been that i don't think so (laughs) Uh, you would think just with the pop culture phenomenon that it is but luke who's going next you me? You, you you weren't expecting that. I wasn't, but I appreciate it. It was like uh, it's like whenever somebody just does the the quick little toss over of the of the ping pong ball and the, it comes up a little bit too high and then just yep just yeah. you Blast get the fire it. yeah right in my nose <laughs> ping pong ball stuck in my nose. My <laughs> uh, one thing I'm gonna go with a comic book I've been reading. I was gonna go with Stardew Valley again, but I didn't think that that would be fair to not come up with a new one. So. Uh, I'm going to talk about Aquaman Volume 6. Okay. It was the ongoing series starring Aquaman from around 2003. And it was where they were trying to get him going again. And I'd always wanted to read it. And I found almost the entire run at this local little comic con that happens. It's just in the basement of a hotel. And it's just like 10 dudes bring in a thousand long boxes. And you can find comics for a buck. Those are the best. It's pretty good. So, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. What were you going to say? I was going to ask who is this Aquaman and who who are the people that did the run, that kind of thing. So, Aqu- I mean, it starts out with regular old Aquaman. And it starts out with Rich Veitch, I think is how you pronounce his name. 
And it goes into later Will Pfeiffer and then John Arcudi writes before Kurt Busiek takes over. And the reason that I was interested in reading the run is like I really like John Arcudi and his BPRD stuff. Kurt Busiek's one of my favorite comic book writers. And I've always been intrigued by the very first cover for the this particular volume because it's Aquaman with this like big lion mane beard and hair. Oh, and he's cool. looking at his new hand and it's all water. Oh, yeah. And, okay. Yeah. So you remember what I'm talking about. He becomes the water bearer yeah. in the first the first section of it. It takes place after a crossover that DC did called the Obsidian Age, yeah. where it turned out that Aquaman is the one that sank Atlantis due to time travel shenanigans. Um, and so he's been cast out of Atlantis, and he still has his hook hand, but he meets the Lady of the Lake, and she gives him a water hand, and he becomes the water bearer. And it had a lot of promise, but not a lot of it came to fruition. There's also some really, really, really weird stuff in the first 12 issues where he teams up with Black Manta and it turns out Black Manta is a villain because he has autism and Aquaman cures his autism. And it's really, really tone deaf and weird. Well, <laughs> um, and then it has Sub Diego where half of San Diego falls in the ocean and Aquaman <laughs> becomes the hero of sub Diego. That's a thing. That's insane, yeah. man. That that yeah. sounds like that's out of a comic book. That's <laughs> yes. It's very comic booky. Uh, the reason that he becomes the hero of sub Diego is because somebody was doing genetic experiments in San Diego. And a lot of the people who sank into the ocean, they grew gills and they became like new Atlanteans. So there are weird, weird ideas in it. 100%. And I'm not finished with it yet. The part that I just got to is where Kurt Busiek takes over and it becomes Aquaman, Sword of Atlantis. Oh, okay. And Aquaman becomes this like Davy Jones kind of character. And he gets a squid beard and a crab claw hand. Still has got his water hand though. And a new Aquaman takes over. Hmm. So if you have any interest in Aquaman and you think he's an interesting character, I don't know that you're going to get a lot of like classic Aquaman stories out of this volume. But it's definitely weird, and I like weird, and I like reading weird ideas in comic books and seeing like, oh, maybe it could have gone this way, and it would be a classic run, but it's not, and it didn't. So <laughs> here we are. <laughs> it sounds weird. It, well, it you said it spun out of Obsidian Age, which is a weird JLA. Obsidian Age is really weird in of itself. The, Just, the part where Plastic Man survives as bits of Plastic Man on the bottom of the ocean for yeah. 3,000 years. That's pretty weird. Yeah, it's oh man, that's a good that's a good book. <laughs> yeah, so that's I'm, my one thing. I'm looking at the uh, at the art here. Some of these covers of the the Aquaman with the <laughs> the tentacle beard. I mean, it is it's super uh, it's super creepy. It's also very swamp thingy. Like yes, like that's it, a good. That it is looks an like. <laughs> It looks like a swamp thingy. He's because he's kind of elemental. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I also oh, yeah. like this part of it because King Shark comes in, and King Shark <laughs> is a really funny character. I think <laughs> I was just looking at issue forty, which that's that shows who I would cover. presume is King Shark, and he has a badass like swiper spear thing. Yes, that looks yep. awesome. King Shark. So, I would not. I would not. F around with him. No. King Shark don't play. Shall we move on to Josh? <laughs> so I, I, I really now want to do a spoiler cast about the Obsidian Age. But okay. Stop talking about it. 
I've been playing Civilization Five on on my PC, my aging PC, uh, nice. which is uh, I think I bought this computer in two thousand six, maybe or two thousand seven, and um, it's it's just still chugging along, but man, it's slow. And uh, so when you load this game from Steam, you have to like go make a snack or something. That really it takes. <laughs> It takes a while to load it up. Like some pizza rolls? Mm, yeah. Yeah. It's it's perfect. Yeah. Put the pizza rolls in. Get the, get the sieve going. Get the, the two liter Dr. Pepper that you're just going to drink straight out of the bottle. You just described my night a couple nights ago. So I've been... I, I love that you you like still relish the, uh, the lazy undergrad like occasional night. Like that's yeah. definitely a Josh thing. Occasionally... There'll be the uh, the text or be like, hey man, you wanna you wanna do something? And you're like, I'm pretty much in my boxers and I'm just gonna play <laughs> play Civ five and eat pizza rolls. Like, yeah. and, <laughs> I can dig that. Like, <laughs> that is self care. <laughs> Periodically, so I uh, started Civ five and I've I've played. Uh, Steam says that I've played eighty some odd hours of Civ four. But wow. so it's been a, it's been a long time. That was my PhD, like uh-huh. toward the end of it, my my game to just unwind and zone out. Um, but Civ Five, I haven't played very much of, and so I started a new game, uh, randomized everything, uh, randomized the Civ that I um, started playing as, and I was given France. Nice. And John, I know you've you've played Civilization Five before. Yes, I have. Have you ever played as France? Are you Napoleon? I'm Napoleon. Yeah. Yes, then yes, I have been so, Napoleon. So they're warlike. They're they're one of the warlike civs, and so uh-huh. you get bonuses to like making soldiers and and conquering foes and that kind of thing. But I, the way I'm playing this game, I'm exporting culture like a right? mofo. <laughs> yes, yeah, making great works of art, expanding uh, boundaries. Just by the sheer force of how rad my culture is, so I'm I'm going to win this game with culture, um, and not You're going to have the Louvre. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm I'm aiming for. So I've got to you know build up my tech trees to get there. But um, I love it. Have you ever played Civ? I haven't. No. So is but with these games, is this the kind of thing where you like burn thirty minutes, or do you have to like sit down and sort of like hit stretch, like hit goals in an hour and a half? Like you really got to grind for a minute or it, it's it's a grind. Um, okay. I mean, you can set it in such a way that you could play shorter games, but even the shortest game, I would say, would last you a couple hours. Wouldn't okay. you say, John? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think that if you're gonna play Civ. You need to have one of those evenings like you were describing mm-hmm. where you're just that's what you're going to do. Yeah. And you're not going to get up because the first bit is gr- like you're you're a Stone Age civilization and that's a lot of grinding and learning and building. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of speeds up towards the end. I, f- I always felt like I would crest the roller coaster and then just like mad dash towards victory on the other side after getting to the uh the industrial age, I guess. Yeah. I haven't played Civ in a long time. Now I kind of want to. <clears throat> uh, you So when you were talking about Stardew Valley a few weeks ago, I started wanting to play some sort of simulation game. And right. the, the Harvest Moon game that I was playing just isn't doing it for me. So uh, I loaded up Civ. And yeah, I'm, I'm in the middle of it. We're, we're in the common era now. Um, I'm, awesome. I'm, I'm expo- exporting culture from Lyon. <laughs> so, 
it's a lot of fun. Yeah. I, I have very fond memories of the Civilization games. They are super fun. Every now and then, Civ Four, like the complete set of Civ Four, goes on sale on on GOG for like eight dollars, something ridiculous, and it is a literal infinite sandbox. Like I'm going to buy it for you next time it's on sale. I'm getting a. I'm getting a <laughs> I, I mean, I I just never hit. Well, I know we've talked about this. Like at least you and I have talked about this a lot, Josh. Like I've played video games, but I've never been a gamer that was like that. Like my, my gaming was eight hours of halo on a Friday night in college or, uh, playing through like just a handful of like RPGs. Like I've not, I don't know. I'm just not, uh, exposed to a lot of these different play styles and I've not just like sat down and, and, and done it. I think you would love it. I, I really think that you would get into, uh, managing all the different aspects of the mm-hmm. civilization. I think I would like that more. Like my cousin Jacob and I, like, well, he, he would play like Starcraft and, and Warcraft, oh, like all yeah. of those things before they were, of course, like the MMOs, like he would do those games and we would hang out and he would be playing that while we were doing something else, you know? So I've, I've seen lots and lots and lots of those, those games, but I've just not, like I, I would, I would quickly hit a wall, and my frustration would just sort of like I would stop playing. The other thing is those games are real time, right? And so you have to like very quickly yeah. manage everything. And Civ is turn based, and I think I would, I think I, I think the turn based that's more for for my plotting sort of head. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think, think you would, would like Civ Four better because religion, I feel like, plays a much bigger role in it. Yeah, like. You could be France, and you could you could discover Judaism, right? And then you can make Judaism like the world conquering religion, yeah. and become a <laughs> Judaic dictator across the planet, based out of Paris or what? You know, yes. Like, there's all kinds of odd things you can pull off. That's yeah. cool. You can you can set your your policies to be like a totalitarianist, just uh-huh. just a dictator, and then set up your religion in such a way that you send people to uh, different cities to convert them under the nose of the the civilization leader uh-huh and they'll the cities will just leave and join your country they'll just be part of your your nation cool be like oh we're dallas now we're gonna go join france yep exactly and you are napoleon like the whole time so napoleon is immortal it sounds like or, or gandhi <laughs> or whoever you are if you right. were, if you were wanting to like have a a random like a epic fantasy generator. Like you could like almost play through a, an iteration of like one of these Civ games and you would have like the arc for your novels or perhaps like for your D and D like setting, <laughs> you could yeah. come up with like some weirdo, yeah. I don't know, like series of events. I don't know. Absolutely. I think Robert E. Howard would have dug the civilization games a lot. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, he would have. Yeah. So, Anyway, that's uh, that's all I have to say about Civ Five. I, I love it. It's a massive time sink, and it's <laughs> it's just a lot of fun. That's what we have to say about that. One thing. Shall we talk about pirates? Yar. Yar. Who's your favorite pirate? I don't know. Belit's pretty rad. Belit is pretty rad. Is rad. Um. We went, Ashley and I went to uh, Charleston, South Carolina on vacation a few years ago, and we took a haunted tour of the city, and evidently Blackbeard was imprisoned in Charleston near the end of his life, and the the guy told us the legend of, of how Blackbeard met his end, 
and mm-hmm. his headless body evidently swam around a boat three yep. times. Which is totally plausible. Yeah. I believe it. Yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, Blackbeard. He was basically the devil. He's he's up there. I mean, and it may be cliche, but you can't you can't talk. He's like the T Rex of the dinosaur world. Like everybody, <laughs> a, might. a piratical dinosaur. <laughs> I mean, everybody likes T Rex. You can't argue with that. There are other dinosaurs that are cool too. But I I get <laughs> it. I get and I get Blackbeard. Like I, I mean, all of the various mythology that surrounds that dude. Mm-hmm. Like Edward Teach, right? Like Edward he, Teach, yeah, yeah. <laughs> bonkers. Yeah, from from the like the the smoke bombs they would braid yeah. into his beard to the Jolly Roger, you know, all of that stuff. His madness. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like the dude really may have been like Lucifer. Seems that way. Who's your favorite pirate? Me? Yeah. Mm, Grace O'Malley. The Pirate Queen of Ireland. Ah, okay. I feel like we've talked about Grace O'Malley before. I, we talked about her on the Queen of the Black Coast episode we did in the first season. <laughs> did we? Okay. I, I admit I did not listen to that episode in preparation for tonight. No, I didn't. Oh, I, I didn't just either. remember that was when I learned about her because I was like, I wonder who all the famous women pirates in history are. Oh, that's and then right I read about her and I was like, I bet Robert E. Howard was really into Grace O'Malley. I bet. Who, what other what other cool cool ass pirates are there? Calico Jack, yeah, Jean, uh, Jean Lafitte. Who's yeah. the gentleman pirate? Isn't that Lafitte? Is that Lafitte? I don't remember. Mary Reed and Anne Bonny. There you go. Good good pirates. Oh yeah 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 okay. Yep. Long John Long John right Silver. Now. <laughs> Han Solo. So I, I know I've mentioned this uh, this book series, but like you ask, like who's your favorite pirate? And like one of the first things that popped up was the uh, the book, The Lies of Locke Lamora. Like that's kind of a weird. It's not weird in the the genre classification, but it's it's not your standard fantasy fair. Like the world that that series takes place in is Venetian. Like there's a sort of a a water city for a lot of the materials and there's some sweet pirate mafia bosses and stuff so it's kind of a cool like low fantasy almost renaissance setting kind of long con fantasy book and i've i've only read the first book i know the second book fell on some some poorer reviews and i know the third book Got better reviews, that kind of thing. But the first book is stellar. So the Lies of Locke Lamora is awesome, and it's got some pretty badass pirates. And there's uh, what fathers and like a father pirate and daughters. And actually, now that I think about it, there's there's some good conniving pirate daughter action in that book. Which <laughs> maybe Scott Lynch got a little bit of Howard, mm. you know, in his in his veins there. These are all good pirates. Everybody's a good pirate at heart. <laughs> like uh, Jack Sparrow, is he one of your favorite pirates? No, nah, uh, not even in that movie is he one of my favorite pirates. <laughs> I always, when I see that movie, I always think, man, I bet he smells really bad. It's, and he's a close he's talker. <laughs> it smells like sardine breath, like yeah. sardines and like <laughs> like black sta- black strap molasses. I was always a fan of the part where they say something like, "You're the worst pirate I've ever seen," and he's or I've ever heard of, and he's like. But you have heard of me. Yeah. It's pretty good. <laughs> pretty good. Let's talk about a, a different thing. Like, <laughs> we got to be the story. That <laughs> yeah. 
When was this published? Do we have the publication information tonight? Oh, of the 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 OG, the OG Queen of the Black Coast by Robert E. Howard. Uh, this is May 1934 in Weird Tales. So we've we've had a few Conan stories at this point. Yep. <laughs> um, and so I think, unless I'm mistaken, this is the first time we see Conan as a pirate in in the in the tales. We've seen him as uh, a, a young thief. We've seen him as an old king, and um, I believe maybe we've seen him as uh, one of the mercenaries, right? But uh, as part of one of the mercenary groups, but we have not seen him as a pirate. If we were filling in the trivial pursuit circle of Conan, we've just added a new piece is what you're saying. That's right. Purple for pirate. I like that. Uh, I like alliteration. (laughs) So... Do we want to summarize the book version a little bit first? I know we've covered it in the past, but. Sure. Would you like to do that for us, Josh? I'll try. This this is, uh, uh, I'll try to be brief. <laughs> I meander sometimes. No. But here we go. Uh, Conan is trying to get away uh, from a judge and the city guards. And he rides his horse onto a ship, right? Like he jumps over onto a ship that's departing a harbor. And this ship that he is now uh, a crew member on by threat of death is uh, (laughs) overtaken by a pirate ship called the Tigress, I believe. Yep. Which is captained by Belit, the, the fabled queen of the Black Coast. And everyone else on Conan's ship is killed except for him. And Belit sort of recognizes a kindred spirit within Conan. So she um, uh, basically tells him that, that they are now together. They're, they're, they're an item now. And <laughs> they spend a couple of years, I think. I, I don't know if the amount of time is, is explicitly depicted, but they spend years right. with one another uh, basically just being pirate scourges, king king and queen of the Black Coast, yep. until one fateful day when they find the mouth of a, a fabled river that leads to an ancient city with some legendary treasure, and they try to uh, uh, find that treasure, and uh, an, an unfortunate end ensues. Yep. Nice. Good job. Thanks. And so there's a there's a variety of comics. That's the bottom line here is like what's the what's the subtitle for this episode? The adaptation is the, that right? The adaptation. So there's lots of adaptations <clears throat> of this story, and so we're focusing on uh, the comic versions of that. I don't know. I mean, maybe there's adaptations elsewhere. I think we could talk about the Conan and the Barbarian movie, and I mm. know we've 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 mentioned that when we covered the Queen of the Black Coast proper. So maybe we'll revisit that, but we're going to focus our conversation here on the various comics. And so there's, of course, the Marvel uh, Savage Sword of Conan long series. And so Belit was a central character within that for a good span of issues. There's that. Uh, and that's that's what I read. So I, I didn't read the entirety of the, like, the Belit run, but I read about a dozen of those issues and then I, I looked at some of the newer, like Brian Wood, Becky Cloonan stuff, like just quickly moved through it. Uh, but then, of course, there's all the Dark Horse materials too, right, John? Right. I don't want anybody to at you again. So it was not Savage Sword. It was Conan the Barbarian 
Oh. That Marvel series. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. I, I, think, I don't. I just don't I'm want sorry. you to get yelled at on the internet. Dude. Well, it's it's weird <laughs> because I think this story is is one of those glaring omissions, uh, one of those tales that didn't appear in Savage Sword of Conan. Thank you. Right. And I would actually argue, my opinion is it should have been in Savage Sword because if we look at Savage Sword, it's a little more mature, right? I would mm-hmm. say but- in comparison to the Conan the Barbarian series. It, it crossed some lines that they didn't in the mainstream comic version. Yeah. And I think this story would have fit in better with that. It would have. And that's a, so I'm glad you corrected me. And I don't know why I misspoke there. Uh, but the, the belief run with Incon and the barbarian, it's lots of like monster of the week stories. Like as soon as Conan hooks up with uh Belit, it quickly becomes uh, a Conan and Belit romp like across like from aisle to aisle and situation to situation. Mm-hmm. It's know, kind of an X-Files type thing. Don't they fight? A, they fight a giant moth and crap. Yeah, oh yeah. 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 <laughs> like the, the second to last, uh, or wait. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they, they I, so I read all, I read those issues. Like the, so the first issue is essentially the beginning of, uh, you know, the queen of the black coast story. Mm. The second issue is kind of the Belit origin story. And I took, uh, Took a a squeen a squeen. I took a I took a squeen. I took a screen cap of part of the Hyborian page section where they talk about how uh, like what the jumping off point was for the Belit origin story that's in that second issue that she appears in. Mm. Uh, and what so what issue is that there that you're looking at, Josh? Um, this is it looks like issue fifty eight. Yeah, and so issue fifty nine is the like the origin story of Belit then. Uh, and so <clears throat> there's a little bit of information there where you get that. And then it just quickly becomes into like Conan and Belit doing crazy stuff. They meet like Amra uh, and they they jump around. They fight, you know, uh, dragon riders like these dudes that ride crocodiles or like alligators. That's pretty cool. That was <laughs> that was a fun like multi issue kind of run uh, that happened early on. Uh, and I don't I can't remember exactly how many issues that covers. But then what like one hundred is the death of Belit. Mm-hmm. So we kind of circle back around to that. Yeah, like uh, the straight adaptation of Queen of the Black Coast is fifty eight. 57 58 and 100 or something like that yeah, i think yeah yep it so. really is just like the front and the back and so the argument that the writers present and i'll pull it up here is that within the uh that second sort of origin story issue they uh you know they had a couple jumping off points and they basically say uh i'll just read it here for reasons all his own and with no intention whatsoever trying to persuade dyed-in-the-wool REH fans to abandon their own ideas of how a white woman might have become uncrowned queen of an ancient African coastal kingdom, Roy decided he wanted to fill in some of these blank spaces. It's hoped quite sincerely that the Ballad of Belit, which is the second issue of the Belit's introduced and her sort of origin story, mm-hmm. uh will both make the she-pirate a more fully realized and thus more real character, and at the same time answer those few critics who for some months now have been decrying, decrying this particular Conan life episode as a racist one. Give us a few issues, and we hope to dispel these fears even further. As to what Roy Thomas and John uh, Busema base their now-official version of Belit's original, one, 
Her statement quoted in the last issue, that her or ish, <laughs> as they write, that her forefathers were kings of Asgalon. Two, mentioned in the original tale by R.E.H. that she rec- recruited her coursers from the Southern Isles, about which Howard himself never said much. Three, particular referencing Queen of the Black Coast to the butchered Stygian ships whose survivors named both Conan and Belit with curse, implying that the lady may have had an especial grudge against the ancestors of the ancient Egyptians who now drill, dwell on the River Styx. I'll move this along. This is like, there's multi-points here. Three, mention of the old shaman uh, Nyaga. Five, the inclusion of a sub-chieftain named Nagora. Uh, six, mention of Belit and Queen of her Shimitish gods, including one Dracado. And basically, taking just a handful of names that were dropped in a handful of locations... Uh, Thomas and Busima just expanded it, and they they thought, hey, you know, those couple paragraphs within, within Queen of the Black Coast where we say, uh, where, where Howard says, Conan and Belit went and did some adventures as lovers, let's expand that and, like, paint up some Monster of the Week type of events. Sorry if I, like, belabored that. No, but I, th- I, thought it would, I thought it would be at least appropriate to talk about, because this is, like, what, like a 50-ish issue run where yeah. Belit's in comics. I think you hit on what I find fascinating about adaptations of the story, which is I, I know that we are we are outspoken lovers of Belit, right? Like, we think she's a cool character. It's clear that a lot of people feel that way. Like, they want her to be in more stuff. She's only in this one story. She appears, loves, and dies. But clearly, I think adapters want her to be the Catwoman to his Batman, sort of. I I think you're right. And I think that is a good sort of interpretation. Like, Catwoman is just as capable a a superhero, or or an anti-superhero, I guess, as Batman is. She's she's smart. She's wily. uh, She's physically very tough. You know, uh, so she's a good sort of counterpoint slash balancing act against Batman. And I think Belit serves as a good counterpoint slash balancing act to Conan. Yeah, and all of the cool bits of story that are layered upon Belit in that that origin story, the Ballad of Belit issue... I think it's I think it's good. I mean, the, man, the art like Busima, he just like kills it. I, I think Belit is so beautiful. <laughs> like the way that she's drawn in the issues, it's just it's it's so great. Like, uh, she's a, a woman of action. She's she's kicking butt. She's you know like in that origin story, she's doing everything that that the men do. And in a I don't know. Like she's she's kind of like coming into this legend that's sort of like laid out for her, this mythology or this like legacy. I don't know uh, all of these things that are promised and sort of you know harbinged by her name, which is goddess, right? Right. I think one of the interesting things about the way that Busima presents her is she's essentially dressed like Conan, right? Like the loincloth that yeah. he wears, the brown fur is just extended up over her her midsection to cover her breasts but it's the same material the same texture and if you look i think she even has the same kind of necklace that uh barry windsor smith drew conan as having in the early issues of conan the barbarian it's that like chain with three discs Mm -hmm. and i feel like it's this sort like what josh was saying she's supposed to be this counterpoint to conan this 
this female version of Conan, basically. So I mean, that's uh, that's the like the the I don't want to say the original, but the initial Marvel adaptation within like the standard like not the savage sword but within like the standard fair mm-hmm. marvel like any old kid picking it up on the street might have read it sort of issue but there's a variety of other depictions of her that's you know right. in, a, in a more mature fashion that's not <laughs> i guess it would be like the savage sword versions like <laughs> of contemporary times but so so maybe one of you guys that read uh like the uh the the dark horse adaptations can speak to that and we can kind of move through some of the other stuff. Yeah. I would just point like, uh, if you read on the Wikipedia page, it also talks about, there's a Finnish graphic novel of queen of the black coast. That's only been published there. So we're not going to talk about it here. I wish that we could get our hands on it and speak Finnish and do a whole episode like that. And there's also a GURPS. What's GURPS? GURPS is generic universal role-playing system. Cool. So there's also one of those of Conan and Queen of the Black Coast. So it's been adapted a couple of other times, but the dark, the dark horse version of Queen of the Black Coast that was produced in their Conan comics was done by Brian Wood and Becky Cloonan originally, and it was kind of a relaunch, right, Josh? Yeah. This this was a uh, I don't know how much had very much time passed between the times when uh, Brian Wood and, and Becky Cloonan. Uh, became the the driving creative force and the departure of um, Carrie Nord and Busiek and Nord did the first stuff and then it oh. kind of switched over to Truman and some other people and was King Conan the King and there were a couple of dark horse. Well, I think King Conan was running concurrent with this, or or maybe it was before and then after. I, I'm not 100 percent sure about that. I was just going to Google it. Conan the Sumerian ran from June 25th, 2008, and was done by Timothy Truman and Thomas Giarello until November 24th, 2010. And then it was Conan Road of Kings, which was Roy Thomas and some other folks okay. until the end of 2012, and then or the beginning of 2012. And then in February of 2012, Brian Wood and Becky Cloonan took over to become the writer and artist for this first set of Queen of the Black Coast comics. Okay. So there was some time in between Busiek and Nord's take on Conan and what we've got here. Got it. I was confused about the timeline there because I thought Timothy Truman's run continued after Wood and Clunan's, but I think that he, does he come back in he, on? He must. Yeah. Because they did an adaptation that I saw recently when we were preparing for the Phoenix on the Sword of that story, and that's a that's oh, a fairly yeah. that's a fairly recent Dark Horse. No, I I just picked up what you're talking about. Is King Conan a series of mini series about <sighs> King Conan? Okay. by Timothy Truman and Thomas Giarello from 2011 until 2016. There you go. So okay. it was concurrent. Okay, that that makes Bada sense. Boom. We're we, all right. We were both right. And wrong at the same time. All of those who have sinned have fallen short of the glory of God. <laughs> <laughs> I'll drink to that. <laughs> so we open with Queen of the Black Coast, the first few issues of this trade, which is volume 13 and the Dark Horse publications, are pretty much a straight adaptation. And I think that I remember it being not very well received in real time. Is that what you kind of recall? That's what I recall. And I don't think it was necessarily... Um, I don't think it was warranted. Uh, personally, I, I like 
the adaptation that Wood and Clunan uh, put forward. I like the way that Belit is depicted, especially. Um, yeah. Conan is a much younger Conan here than than Busima depicted him in the Marvel run. Uh, but but boy, uh, Belit is just uh, bestial in these images, right? Like she is, she's an animal. Yeah. Um, yeah. She, she's an elemental force. And, and I want to come back to that notion in just a bit, but I, I think Clunan really effectively captures this sort of barbaric nature of Belit. Um, and you and I were texting about this last night, <laughs> John. And um, I said that I, I had, uh, maybe a hot take on my favorite Belit, <laughs> and maybe it's not a hot take, but this is my favorite. I I will I will hazard to say that this will end up being a hot take. Like I think a lot of people were really down on what Clunan presented, dude. <laughs> it's beautiful. I mean, I know the the, the I, we are all on record yes. as Becky Clunan likers, right? Like, I mean, yeah. that is not a secret on this show. Truth. Like the way, the, like the very first image that she's presented as, I mean, she looks vampiric, right? There's like blood dripping from her fangs. She yeah. is feral, like animalistic. Those those terms that you were that you were referring to, Josh. Like the way that she's presented, it's it's everything that you would expect this this pantherly panther, like seductress of of Conan to be. Yeah, it's great. Well, <laughs> you know if. If she were just a a tame sort of uh, feminine figure, I, I don't know that she would have been necessarily a match for for Conan. And I think you know I mentioned that I I think that Becky Clunan captures this elemental sort of nature of Belit in these in these uh, illustrations. And I wanted to just r- refer back to the original story. For just a second. Um, here are a couple of descriptions of Belit. Let's see. She was untamed as a desert wind, supple and dangerous as a she-panther. She came close to him, heedless of his great blade, dripping with the blood of her warriors. Her supple thigh brushed against it, so close she came to the tall warrior. Her red lips parted as she stared up into his somber, menacing eyes. Just, uh, just a second. So I'm skipping forward. This is in the Del Rey. That was page 127. This is on page 128. And it says, and she danced like the spin of a desert whirlwind, like the leaping of a quenchless flame, like the urge of creation and the urge of death. Her white feet spurned the bloodstained deck and dying men forgot death as they gazed frozen at her. Like she is this elemental force that Howard's writing about. And if you make note, and this, this continues on throughout the story, Belit is often described as, as fiery or, or like a desert wind, which is arid and hot. She she's fire, and to, as a counterpoint to that, again on page one twenty seven, she says to to Conan, "Let's see, look at me, Conan." She threw wide her arms. "I am Belit, queen of the Black Coast. O tiger of the north, you are cold as the snowy mountains which bred you." So Conan here is depicted as icy and 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 uh, sort of this northern force, this this counterpoint to Belit's fire, her her uh, essential sort of uh, element that Howard's depicting and Conan, she, she picks up on this, um, that he is, he is not fire. He is ice. And so to go back to something Luke said earlier about George R. R. Martin and this intersectionality between game of Thrones and the Lord of the Rings and the Conan saga, 
here we have a depiction of an icy northerner and a fiery southern queen mm-hmm. sort of coming together in a relationship that is, is uh, sort of greater than the sum of its parts. Yeah, yeah. It's, I don't know, I, I really like just the the visual elements that, that at least in this iteration of, of Belit, that, 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 that Becky Cloonan pulls into it. Like, in every, in, not in every instance, but in instances where you get that close-up, like, like Belit's eyes, her pupils are, like, super, they're dilated, and she has this otherworldly sort of countenance that she's, that she's presenting to to Conan. She's also pale and, mm-hmm. and black haired in that that uh, Shemite heritage, mm-hmm. or we could interpret that as like a Jewish heritage. Like that's the that's the the analog within the Howard verse. It captures those items, and yet, despite that sort of pale, you know, like skin tone and the the dark hair, like she is. She is fire. Like I don't know. I I think you're you're very much onto that elemental depiction, both in the text and in this adaptation. And I think there's a dynamism within Clunan's art that sort of lends to her being fire. And in the the story, she when Howard talks about her doing her mating dance in front of Conan, yep. she she leaps and twirls, and you can imagine you know sitting at a fire pit watching a fire do those those similar sort of things, at least in appearance, you know, as the flames lick higher into the, the, the night sky and then die down a little bit lower. There, there's a certain dynamic aspect yeah. that I think uh, Clunan's artwork captures within Belit, and you just don't know what she's going to do. Like she, she is legitimately kind of scary. Yeah, man. That's what I like the most about Clunan's art is I think it captures that scariness of Belit. Like Conan is playing with fire by being around and being with Belit. I think that that's sort of the story that is being told here is it's young love and Conan is, is playing with it in a way that maybe is going to backfire on him that we, as we find out later, but her art is just, it's amazing at capturing. And there's this shift in it where before he actually meets her and the crew of the Tigress, they all look like ink washed, dark demons. Yeah. Right. And she's like all fiery, like, like Blackbeard. She's got this, smoke around her in this veil of mystery and mystique and then when he actually gets on the deck and meets her the colors change dave stewart is the colorist on this and her eyes become different colors multiple times her clothes change color and then even the crewmen of the tigress become human after he actually meets them Mm -hmm. there's this whole tonal shift that occurs once he actually gets on board and i just think it captures the story really well. I think it's an excellent beginning of the adaptation. I think I'm the only one that read the whole thing. I right? think you are. Yes. Yeah. yeah. The, the four, I think four trades of it. And it goes from volume 13 to volume, volume 16, which is called the song of bully. So it's queen of the black coast, the death, and then the nightmare of the shallows. And then the song of bully. Okay. Uh, that's the last piece of it. And like Luke was saying about the Marvel one where you get these monsters of the week, there's a lot of extrapolating from Howard's text for these of these two middle sections, the nightmare of the shallows and the death. I I can see where some of this would have made people, especially Howard Pierce, kind of angry because 
the story that gets put together, I guess the short of it is after they're introduced, Conan takes Billy home to Samaria to meet his mom who's alive. (laughs) And his mom is very disappointed in that he's hanging out with Billy and thinks that she's just like a slave foreign girl. Uh, Conan has to kill somebody who's going around saying that he's Conan and burning a bunch of Sumerian villages, and it turns out to be his childhood friend. They kill him, and then they leave and get back on the Tigris. And it's just it's a lot of love story after that. It's a lot of devotion and sort of weird drug-fueled trips yeah. where uh, Conan and Billy end up doing yellow lotus powder, and Conan has this whole dream sequence where he becomes an old man on a Caribbean island with Billy and has two kids um, until some people show up to try and kill them. There is a part where she becomes pregnant and miscarries and wants to leave their relationship. So she goes home to Shim and hides out in her dad's fortress. Like we actually meet her family and she is the daughter of a king, a warlord king of this desert fortress and Conan joins an army that's trying to break into this fortress just so he can get to her and then gets captured and proves his love to the King. And then in order to let him live, Belit has to swear she'll never leave again. And she lies and says that she won't. And then they sneak out. Then they go do the drugs. And then we get the end of the story where, uh, Belit and Conan, they're raiding up and down the coast. They're having a good time. And then they find the the darkened city where they have their final adventure together. Right before that, they meet a like a Germanic cult that worships black stones. And hmm. they almost capture Belit and turn her into a cultist. Okay. And then they go on their last adventure. The problem I have with the Dark Horse adaptation is this penultimate issue of it where they're fighting the winged demon Conan in the original story. He fights off all the hyenas, right? Right. And then he snaps one of them in half. And that's really well depicted, um, in this. But then when the, the winged terror shows up to attack him, the point of the queen of the black coast story is that what happens, like what happens in the OG story? He, uh, he being Conan, runs into some black lotus flowers right and it accidentally inhales them and goes on a trip and right. while he's unconscious the the winged ape the winged demon um attacks and kills their crew and then hangs belit by the neck with the the jewelry that she found like the the necklace that she found and when conan comes out of it kind of snaps out of it he finds the the remnants of the crew and he finds Belit there. So that's similarly depicted here. And then when he has his ultimate battle with the winged demon, he, he struggles against it. If I'm remembering correctly, right? Yes, Luke? Yeah. Yeah. And he's not going to be successful. Like he gets pinned under a column and then Belit's ghost has to come and save him. Right. Yeah. That's and, that's and, the way the story works. Yeah, and that's that's absent within the the finale, right? If the of the Dark Horse adaptation, she shows up and talks to him and says, "Conan, were I still in death, 
and you fighting for your life, I would come back from the abyss. And then the winged demon flies through her ghost and he cuts it in half. So like, there's no peril. She doesn't save him like she does in the original story. I think it's robbed of a lot of the power. Like the coolness of that story is that Billy is more powerful than death. Almost. Yeah. Like she is an elemental force. She is so powerful that she can come back and save Conan. Conan wouldn't be around anymore if it weren't for her. And that's just not the case in this adaptation. Um, the end result is the same. The demon is killed and Conan leaves, but there's this extra issue where he sails down the coast a ways with the boat, with her dead body in it and all of their treasure. Mm. And then he becomes a bar fighter for one issue trying to get killed in these bar fights. And he kills like 10 or 12 people over the course of a couple weeks in these fights. And this bartender, her name is Steffi. I want to say, um, something like that. I can't remember now. And she ends up having to like pull him out of his tailspin. And then he sets fire to the boat and decides to move on. But it's a really, I think it's just a really weird choice for the, I think that the the original ending is is chef's kiss, right? Like it's it's good stuff. This mm-hmm. I didn't think was in the original story on page one forty seven of the Dark Horse. Sorry, of the uh, Del Rey. Um, it says, "In one mad instant, she was there, a tense white shape, vibrant with love, fierce as a she panther's." The days Samarian saw between him and the onrushing death, her lithe figure, shimmering like ivory beneath the moon. He saw the blaze of her dark eyes, the thick cluster of her burnished hair. Her bosom heaved, her red lips were parted. She cried out sharp and ringing as the ring of steel as she thrust at the winged monster's breast. So again, we have we have some uh, fiery descriptions, right? Mm-hmm. Like the blaze of her eyes. She She's uh, shining there in the darkness as a, a beacon of protection for Conan. And then... I guess, you know, uh, I don't know why they would have added the uh, the bar fight scene because the chapter five, the funeral pyre in the original text is so moving. It's only, you know, right. it's, it's on a, a two page spread here and uh, it's dawn and the sun's coming up and it's it's giving this fiery look to everything. And Conan sets fire to the ship with Belite on there, like truly sort of uh, bringing her into her own element as, as a final closing a way to say goodbye. No hand was at the sweep of the tigress. No oars drove her through the green water, but a clean tanging wind bellied her silken sail. And as a wild swan cleaves the sky to her nest, she sped seaward flames mounting higher and higher from her deck to lick at the mast and envelop the figure that lay lapped in scarlet on the shining pyre. So passed the queen of the black coast, and leaning on his red-stained sword, Conan stood silently until the red glow had faded far out into the blue hazes, and dawn splashed its rose and gold over the ocean. It's beautiful. It's it really is. Yeah. And I I just as I reread the story in anticipation of recording this, I I had a conversation with Luke the other day and said I I think there's an elemental quality to Belit, and I don't want to tell you what it is. I want to see if you pick up on it. But I mean, to to me, Belit is fire. Like she is uh, the embodiment of this elemental force, 
that kind of burns into Conan's life, burns into his mind, um, and lives as though this sort of, I don't know, she's, she's burning through life, I guess. Burning the candle at both ends. Burning right? the candle at both ends. I mean, it's almost, and I don't want to detract from Howard's like description and 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 presentation of the character. I mean, it is a very she is she's about as you know overtly feminine in a lot of ways as you could be, and and like Conan's countenance in a lot of ways is about as like hyper masculine as you can be, right? Sure. <laughs> so it's it's playing up these characterizations to 11 and it gets at the cold demeanor demeanor that we can uh, and you know emotionless and disconnected sort of perspective that the hyper masculine character can play and the the over you know passionate overly emotioned and passionate presentation of like a feminine side. Mm. I mean, it is that it's, it is, it is fire and ice. <laughs> <laughs> the song of belief. I mean, yeah. that, that is the, uh, the, the little couplets that start each chapter within the, the short story. Yeah. So ultimately, John, would you say that you enjoyed the dark horse adaptation more than the Marvel adaptation? I think that the Marvel adaptation plays it a little straighter. Um, I mean, there is, they're both, they both have intervening pieces. They start out with like two issues that are fo- two or three issues focused on the introductory material of Queen of the Black Coast before several issues later concluding the story with Billy's death. Like we get more of those adventures yeah. that are tant- like tantalizingly teased in Howard's story. The, the stories in the Marvel one, like we said, are monster of the week. Like hey, it's the claw people of the mountains that ride crocodiles. So it's a little schlockier than this. And I appreciate what Brian Wood was trying to do there. There is some good stuff in it. Like this talk about fire and ice. I think that he would really be intrigued to hear some of your discussion about that, Josh, because these intervening two trades, the first one they're in Samaria and Belit is like freezing to death and goes snow blind. And they talk all the time about how cold Samaria is and how cold it makes Conan and his attitude towards life is very fatalistic. And then they go to Shim where she's from and he tries to fight his way in to get her and everything's on fire and sand covered and bleached and bones everywhere. And Mm -hmm. he is playing with some of the same stuff that you're kind of describing. So you talking about that, brings out some of that flavor that I had missed previously, but it's, it ends rough for me. I, d- I don't yeah. like the way that he concludes it. Yeah. The, the Marvel seventies stuff plays exactly like that. It is, you just pick up an issue and just go for a romp and you get some, some really cool, like tight panels and lots of action and the, the way that at least, the dark horse materials that I read are there, you know, they're, they're more spaced out. There's lots and lots of narrative that's sort of spilling across panels. It's, it's all of the things that you would expect and contrast between like two thousands comics and seventies comics, <laughs> yeah. like on display here. And they're both, they're both good. Uh, and they're both like, go- like beliefs gorgeous in both, both versions. Like I just can't get over, the like the way that either B- 
Busimo or like Clooney can like throw Belit's hip out to a side, and it's just so like sexy and alluring. It's just crazy, man. It's just. Yeah. This is beautiful. They, they both nailed that description of her. Like she, she is as Howard describes her, both uh, slim and lithe, but but also with some curves. Yeah, man. So yeah, I think they both nail the depiction. It's it's just uh, slightly different takes, like yeah. you would expect. Yeah, for me, the big difference comes down to I. I think Brian Wood was trying to write about young love, yeah, about like the the passion that you feel because Conan's like. 20 maybe 19 or 20 yeah. in the dark horse version where it looks like he's like 35 in the marvel one <laughs> right and he's drawn in the dark horse materials as a, a slim like that the whole like style that that clunan draws on and like uh, and other people sort of worked off of like you know followed it's it's sparer and i remember People having a lot of haterade for like, you know, a twiggy, it's Twilight a twiggy Conan. Conan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's twenty. He's not. He's not. Uh, I don't know, man. I think it's. I think it's great. Of course, in every story of Conan, he's not going to be beefed up and like a pushing the the pillars down, Samson style. <laughs> like that's not. That's not Conan. He's a 19-year-old that just came out of the mountains eating roots for his entire childhood. Like right. he's not he's not Arnold Schwarzenegger yet. No. He's still building that body up and trying to get to be as strong as he can be. But if you ever do, I maybe I'll send you guys these trades and you can check them out or something, but it's definitely about how like young love can burn you up and burn you out. And Conan, I think part of the complaints also about this part uh, or this series was that Conan is very introspective. He thinks a lot about love and about the responsibility he has to believe and to himself and his freedom. And I think that that turned some people off. Perhaps it was a little too cull like for them, for him to be thinking so much, but um, it's or, interesting. It's or, a, it just a different take. It was a relaunch. They were going to have to try and do something different. Yeah. I mean, that's, and that's more real Conan too, for whatever it's worth. Right. Well, I think it's yeah. worth, I think it's worth having the conversation since we're talking about adaptations. Do you do you guys want to read the same story over and over, <laughs> translated directly from the original text with a, a different artist on it? Because doesn't that do something to the? I don't. Doesn't that have some effect on the writer's agency? Yes. Yes, yeah, it does, I, and yeah. no, I don't want to read that same story over and over again. Yeah, it's the it's the conundrum that anybody that is trying to adapt Conan is going to ever face. Like we were just talking about Savage Sword and Conan the Barbarian and all those Marvel runs. Like, think of Savage Sword, and there's all these issues that you can think of, and some of them are straight adaptations. But even then, they play with the text. They mm-hmm. add things that become part of our conscious perception of Conan, even though they weren't Howard's intention. Like they're now part of the zeitgeist with Conan, and they're things that we had never seen before. Like think of the crucifixion scene, even though that's in Howard's original text, nobody had seen it per se until. Busima or whoever it was that had that issue drew it and it there's good things about straight adaptations and then there's not like it can be fun 
but it can also be a real drag. Like I'm thinking of Zack Snyder's Watchmen, I guess. Okay. Like you couldn't get a more direct adaptation of a famous work than that, I don't think. And would you want to watch that again or do you want to watch that new HBO series which looks like it has almost literally nothing to do with Alan Moore's comic other than the name and like coming out of it? Yeah, it's 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 inspir it's inspiration, right, man? Like right. I like adaptations and this this consistent and persistent need to to have the the argument of I want to see my Conan this way or I want to see my Conan that way. I I don't necessarily and I know we've we've had this conversation otherwise, but Conan's cool, but give me that that Conan character and give me your own spin on it. And don't feel beholden and just do your do your own do your thing. I feel like when people do that and you put the name of Conan on it, like people will get like there will be uh readers that will get upset. Like no matter what you do, you're damned. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah. I one of my I, I think about the Marvel cinematic universe when I think about adaptations a lot because that is ostensibly an adaptation of Marvel comics and yet point to me one of those movies that is an actual straight adaptation of a storyline like right there's very little of that it's it's either a modernization or like some of my favorite ones like if i looked at thor ragnarok that that has like nothing to do with marvel comics other than thor and the hulk and corrigan like there's no it's take taika waititi's take on thor it's not I took Walter Simonson's run on Thor and I turned it into a movie. Right. At the same time, it has elements that are directly inspired by sure. Simonson, especially. Right. You know, ignite and Planet Hulk and yeah, igniting and other... that forge so that uh, Stormbreaker can be can be made right. is is uh, uh, pretty cool to see because it calls back to original texts, but it does not directly parrot them right so i'm on i'm on luke's side with this one i i think that you know when i think about adaptations that i myself am not a big fan of i think of the snyder dc films especially man of steel (laughs) right and if if we're applying this framework to that then i should be more accepting of of man of steel and i'm there's a there's a bunch of folks that are big fans of that film right but that movie's not for me, and I'm a big Superman fan. And I was really bummed out when I watched it because it it just it is it is an adaptation. It's it's definitely different. It takes some liberties with the continuity, so it's not just a a rote remake of the Christopher Reeve film, nor is it a straight adaptation of any of the Superman comics. You know, it has elements in common, but it's not just a, a parrot. But it's just not for me. Would you say there's something to be said for staying true to the spirit of something? Like even these adaptations that we're talking about here, like at the center of it, there's still this civilization and barbarism argument that, that Howard puts forth. Yeah. I mean, I think that's ultimately what comes down to people being like satisfied, like, like Josh's, uh, feelings with that. Right, that's what I was getting. Movie, at. yeah, like, and so, like, what I would say is like the the opposite of that is I was just thinking about like the so the movie Annihilation, 
and the book Annihilation are very different, and I very much prefer the movie adaptation of that. And so I think Alex Gar- Garland is the the director of that. It's the spirit, and there are scenes, and there are elements from that that book that came through in his adaptation. But the 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 story is different, man. And so I feel like the way that uh, you get at, like, but regardless of of plot elements and that kind of thing, the intentionality and like the the feeling of the story is is there. I don't I don't know. I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of meandering, but but really, it really comes down to that movie that uh, adaptation of a thing is not the original. But yet, it still has the same kernels and the same broad themes and tropes that carry over, and it's recognizable. I think we can summarize this by comparing some, looking back to some of the episodes we've recorded this season, and comparing this sort of adaptation of the call story that Lynn Carter did versus the the adaptation or extension of the story that Lynn or that Elsbrick DeCamp did, right? And when we had Rusty on on the call the other day, we were talking about those two stories, and we said that Lynn Carter seems to have captured the spirit of the thing, and that Elsbrig de Camp, you know, just kind of he kind of missed the boat. He didn't really understand the story itself, mm-hmm. right? And I think that that goes directly into what what you're saying here. Like the bones of the the story can be altered from the original form. So long as the soul of the story is there, yeah, I like that. That's what I. That's what I want. I don't. <laughs> I, I tend well, it's to. It's weird to live in this IP-driven world that we live in, right? Like they have to make Man of Steel because you can't just make a movie about a Superman-esque character that kills an enemy. Like I know that Brightburn is coming yeah, out. I was soon about to say James Gunn, <laughs> but like that, he he made his own thing, right? Like he went off and did what he wanted to do. Yeah. Instead of saying, well, I, I have a Superman take and it's this, like it's Superman, but he murders a bunch of people. <laughs> uh, like there's something to be said for sticking to the spirit of a character, but giving it your own flavor, giving it your own idea. Man. And so, but you can't do that in this world, it seems like. Well, so when I was in my heyday of reading of reading comics, like what, five to ten years ago, my favorite things were those, right? Like Garth Ennis doing The Boys and uh, Warren Ellis doing Black Summer or uh, Garth Ennis doing Crossed or – I know I just talked about Ennis twice there – or or Brubaker <laughs> doing any of his uh, crime things. Like they are playing on those those recognizable characterizations, but they're they're not Superman. <laughs> you know, like Mark Wade right. did this whole thing called Irredeemable, right? And it ran across a right. And that was him playing with a bad Superman. Uh, and with the criminal, you've got bad Archie, right? That what's that sec that section called? What is that? Uh, on and criminal, isn't there a, a segment that's a it's like bad Archie? Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, no, I know exactly what you're talking about, but. I don't. I can't remember the name of that. I can't the, remember that, the name of it that, either. That version, yeah. The but there's you don't have to have the name Conan and slap it on something, and to be talking about 
the the hero with this particular face in the Campbellian sense, like like the the Conan that we recognize. I don't know, man. I, this last whole, of the innocent. There we go. The, yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. I I feel what you're saying. Like spiritually, you don't need to call it Conan to do it, but. I mean, I feel so strong. There's not a lot of room for that anymore, right? These, these whole, like, people getting so, I, we do not, this is, this is Luke. Do it. This is not the Comcast. Lay it down. We don't have to belabor what's going to be in the next, uh, Conan movie, game, book, comic. Just go read some sword and sorcery stuff and compare it to Howardian Conan or Decampian Conan and just be cool with it. Like, there's no need to get all up in arms or to argue. Like, it, it, this really does come down to the whole, like, who would win in a fight, Batman or Superman, if dot dot dot, like, some some complication. I don't, I don't well, I mean, get it, man. With what <laughs> you're talking about, look at the Conan movie. Everybody, like The Conan movie is this big cultural thing within the Howardian Conan community. Point me to the one single story it's an adaptation of. Yeah, it's... Uh, it's not, right? Like It's yeah. a culmination of that character. Is that fair to say? Like It has elements of this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It has, like, it has like it's images. It's not an adaptation. Right. Right. <clears throat> and it includes a scene that's directly inspired by the uh, character of Belit, right? Like Valeria is, is not necessarily a straight adaptation of Valeria from uh, red nails. She, she's an amalgam. Right. So what we're saying is adaptations are weird. (laughs) Well, adaptations are largely unnecessary. Again, Luke opinion adaptations are largely unnecessary and don't don't feel obligated to to even like subscribe to them if if they happen that's cool and if it doesn't float your boat that's cool too just just look the other way the the more interesting conversations i think that can be had though are this this media or this element over here and this media or this element over there and making comparisons, like regardless of whatever the name of the protagonist or the antagonist is, right? Like you can, you can interpret the protagonist and the antagonist of the Dark Horse Belit stories with the Howardian Belit stories and just like pretend that those two Belits are not the same because, well, don't even, pre- they're not. <laughs> they're, 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 they're not the same. They're two different people's interpretation or multiple people's interpretations of the same thing and these thought forms what's the term like what's a uh like these 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 various things that are in our heads are not headcanon is that what you're looking for no no it's a it's a spookier term i'll come up with it here in a minute but but they're they're not the same right like like i i don't know i i just want to get youngie in here like it all comes down to these these archetypes and these these sort of like presentations of characters, right? And but is your problem with adaptations that people aren't doing independent creative things? I don't. I don't give. I, I have. I'm okay with <laughs> adaptations. I'm censoring myself here. <laughs> I have problems with people's uh, judgments of adaptations. Like okay, okay, like okay. I, I have no problems not watching 
the past 20 hours of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's it's not because I wouldn't necessarily like totally enjoy that. It's just I haven't put forth the 20 hours of, of watching that. But I'm not going to get all butthurt about what happens with Ant-Man or the Wasp or Tony Stark or or uh, uh, Banner or Spider-Man. Any of those characters because it's it's 2019 and it's Marvel like on film. Of course it's not going to be the same thing that, that happened 15 years ago or 20 years ago or 50 years ago. 50. Yeah. So slavish devotion is your problem. Yes. I mean, it just, it just kills me that people get all upset about like the newest Conan movie. I haven't seen, it. <laughs> I mean, and I don't have to, I don't feel compelled to like watch it and make some sort of ravenous comparison of how it's wrong or, or, or better than something else. Again, this is Luke, and this is not necessarily well, the the rest of the the Chromecast. That's just my feeling. Well, and I think the the real issue, like you can you can be bummed about an adaptation that didn't go the way you wanted it to, and that's one thing. But to I guess become a, an anarchist and want to burn everything down because that adaptation wasn't what you wanted is is uh, a lot much that that's too much because and, it's air quotes wrong right right that that turns you into a gatekeeper for this property and the property doesn't need you to be a gatekeeper for it the property exists without you right like conan <laughs> robert e howard had no uh conception of your perception of belief exactly he didn't yeah. he he gave two poops about how you would view belief dude was trying to sell some stories to weird tales <laughs> I mean, he was an artist as well, but he was trying to make some money, right? Right. And that really, I mean, there there's an element of that to every creative endeavor, I think. But I think the, the issue from my standpoint is when fandom becomes gatekeeping, <laughs> it is a recipe for bad times for everybody. Imagine all the, the energy you're wasting because you didn't like the Momoa Conan. Right? Like, imagine all of the energy you're wasting posting stuff on the internet about how you didn't like how Game of Thrones ended. Man, I was I about think- to say, can't we bring this back to Luke's one thing? And say, like, <laughs> Isn't there a petition now with a million signatures? It's, I mean, it's insane. Remake People, season eight? Yeah. Like, so, exactly what Josh is saying is my – that's my feeling towards, like, the larger criticism, like, the moral criticism of of why you would opt – like against why you would opt to have that kind of perspective. I mean, I don't, I don't deny. Like, I might watch something that I don't like. That I don't like. I'm like, oh, that wasn't the appropriate vision of something. Especially if it is a a, a clear adaptation with a name slapped on the the cover that I recognize. But, <laughs> and <laughs> on a far more personal, selfish, intellectual level, like, I just really want to boil it down to, like, can we not just talk about something that's far more interesting than than whether or not the, like, Jason Momoa or Arnold Schwarzenegger are better better physiques of, of Conan as depicted by Howard? Like, <laughs> like Howard hadn't seen either of those two bro dudes with their shirts off. Like, he, he, didn't, he didn't know what they looked like. He had his, his own headcanon that he put on the page. And we don't have to, I don't know, it, I, I don't feel like there's any need to, you can, you, can deb- you can go around with those things, but I think that it would be more interesting 
to to have a conversation about again this thing versus that thing like it mm-hmm. doesn't i don't know the larger themes yeah and so something that that popped up in my internet searching and and that occurred to me in this last read through of queen of the black coast is how belit kind of fits into the larger framework of of women characters in the pulps right and i was thinking about she and aisha and comparisons that can be made between Aisha and Belit. Mm-hmm. The the to, to go back to your Jungian sort of uh, analysis of of things, like talking about the archetypes and their representations in these stories, whether it's Howard or Brian Wood and Becky Cloonan or uh, Busima and Roy Thomas, like the the way that they interpret those archetypes as presented in the original text and either tweak them. Or, or alter them in some way that, that fits their story. I think that's an interesting conversation, regardless of whether you like the presentation or don't like the presentation. Yeah. <laughs> so just like offhand, you're talking about that. And we're sciencey here. And I know at least like Josh and I have had conversations about like the importance of like spatial and temporal scale is like whenever you're talking about science, that's an important thing to recognize. But like if you're comparing and contrasting, say, Belit and she who shall not be named like Aisha, like Belit is still queen of her domain and that domain's a pirate ship. Right. And the fact that in that Haggard story, that character is the queen of the entirety of, of a land of a, of, of a civilization compare and contrast the civilization of a pirate ship versus an entire culture. There you go. Like that's, <laughs> that's the more interesting comparison of 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 the the air quotes belit character than uh working with you know like the quibbles of how how belit's drawn or something like that right yeah um take belit and compare her to other pulp femme fatales like like maybe somebody from a a dashiell hammett story or, or somebody from who's the the female character the woman character in the maltese falcon yeah, there there are comparisons and, and contrasts to be made across depictions of femme fatales in in pulps, and Belit stands apart because she never really betrays the main character here, like our our hero. She's nor nor that's is, yeah 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 yeah. I, I'm sorry, I didn't no, no, go, go, I, I think I think you're spot on. Like that, I think that is a resonant tone with Howard's characterization of this. Uh, this feminine antagonist is that she does she she's not a, a protag or, or I'm sorry that she's she's a protagonist and does not become the antagonist she is not necessarily the femme fatale she has like all the all the tells and all the signals but she doesn't necessarily betray there's no heel turn yeah well it, and there's that weird scene when she kind of uh, uses her crew members to to set off the booby trap right in the the forgotten city so that's the part of belief that interests me the most is i feel like the the catwoman thing i said earlier was kind of offhand but the more i think about it the more i think there's something there like she's part of this she's not the progenitor of this tradition but she's part of this tradition of of not so great women characters that are 
interesting, but like not a not the virgin or what what does Luke call it when we talk about something like the virgin, the Madonna? Yeah, like the 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 like the the Madonna and the whore complex, right? Like you're either the Madonna or the whore is like the the classic sort of dichotomy within like a horror movie. Right? But she's neither, right? She's Belit, right? Like she just is Belit, and she kills people like straight up. She kills Tito of the Argus and and is a murderer. She's not a good person. And her moral compass is very skewed compared to Conan's. Like, there's some. Well, there is I mean, you some say that in his heart with the uh, with the stories we read previously. Like, there's the statement, at least like within the God in the Bowl. And I know that's not necessarily canonical Conan, but he admits like he would have murdered bros before you know like had i come across this body in the like this this living body within yeah. the, the the art museum i would have i would have made it a dead body but i came across a dead body yeah he was I, already like, dead i didn't yeah. i couldn't kill him because he was already dead and he talks about how he would have killed Eris the watch watchman yeah. right like but he misrecognized him i think is the excuse that he, he gets. thought he was like, a fellow thief. he thought he was another <laughs> thief yeah yes and I feel like it's part of the reason that Belit persists. Like we're still talking about Belit. She's a named character. She has a Marvel comic book series right now on the stands yeah. that is being published. Like what other woman that Conan encounters can we talk about having that same impact on pop culture? I, mean, I read Sonya, but it's not even the same. It's not even it's Howard, not even right? remotely the same a little bit, right? a little like, different. i mean she's in she's a historical adventure character that gets turned into <coughs> real sonia right yeah there's we're not talking about the zuthal of the dusk woman right like, right right zenobia was that was that her I, there there are women that pop up and like he marries zenobia or, or i can't remember okay what the whole story is but there's something about billy like she is a a timeless lasting character like she could be her own series if so she wanted, if so with wanted. within the marvel uh version i can't remember which issue it is but it happens relatively like within the first like six to ten issues there's a double page spread which of course in in like comics at that time are pretty pretty rare but there's a double page spread where conan is like reflecting on all of the various loves of his like marvel conan the barbarian existence and it comes back like the you know the 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 bottom right hand portion of that double page spread is the equivalent of there's nobody that's going to top belit like she is the the primal essence of of woman like it it gets at her being uh you know the the one right he'll never get over yeah yeah so john why does belit persist within pop culture within the pulp inspired literature be it comics or whatever. I mean, my argument would just be that she's different. She's different than a lot of those other characters that Conan encounters. She is Conan-esque. She offers a very interesting counter lever to him, where she doesn't have the same moral compass that he does, though they're still interested in the same things, and can represent this fiery love that, like we talked about, the fire, the the beauty of fire, but the pain and the torture that it can also bring. I think that that's why she persists. Okay. How about you, Luke? I echo that. I mean, that's the reason that she is so strong. Yeah. I, I, I don't know why I didn't notice it the first read through, but I guess that's one of the cool things about Howard stories, right? Is that 
often they are more layered and complex than you realize at first blush. And this one in particular, I think there's a, there's a lot of meat here to, to chew on. And I think that Belit offers this unique sort of perspective from Howard on what young relationships are like, what it is to be sort of uh, to sort of live at your whim and the dangers of that. Maybe. Um, do you guys think this is a cautionary tale at all? A little bit. I, I, I would maintain that this is a story about Conan falling in love for the first time, maybe with the wrong person. Like it's the greatest love of his life perhaps, but it's not healthy for him. <laughs> and, and it definitely seems like when they, when they decide to go up the, the creepy river that Conan and Belit have had discussions about going and resupplying and picking up more crew and Belit doesn't want to. Right. And Conan doesn't argue. He is her sword arm. I don't know, man. I like, like I, I get that it's a cautionary tale, but I think this is the, like, I think this is, this is Romeo and Juliet. This is any number of, uh, recurrent themes within true love tropes. Like, like love is, is a bad, scary thing. And so I don't necessarily see it as a cautionary tale. It's just a tragedy, right? Like that's, it's, it starts out. And in in, when I say comedy, like in a, in the, the dichotomy, like against tragedy, it starts out as, as a happy, and roving story but then it ultimately if you travel long enough it ends in tragedy here with how these characters truly are sort of like resonating against each other any other thoughts before we uh sail away from the black coast as uh the ship burns behind us (laughs) in the coast this this meandered a bit but this was fun and i mean it's I, i you know i know that we've recycled some statements here that we've we've spilled out over previous seasons but this is a (laughs) this is almost like a a a timeless like evergreen discussion related to fandom yeah like this kind of topic i don't know if there's been another episode that has allowed us to directly sort of take on these issues quite like this one because the the dark horse adaptation was received poorly by the fandom, you know, that, that sort of opens the door for us to, to sort of wrestle with these ideas. Mm -hmm. So I think we've, we've danced around it, but I don't know that we've ever grabbed that bull by the horns, that Sumerian bull and tried to choke it with our own. Well, I think this was called the adaptation. Yeah. I think this does like we've had these conversations this season already about DeCamp and Carter though. It's true. And yeah. the roles that those dudes played in in Howard's stuff and they are adapting his material. So this is something that that any of the the pulp readers and anybody that's into Howard or Lovecraft or Smith or any other number of those writers of that time, you're going to have to reckon with it the same way that you have to reckon with all the other like awkward and uncomfortable and weird social stuff that comes along with reading the stories. Like you have to reckon with how people have, you know, 
appropriated and adapted this stuff. Do you think there are Mark Twain fans that are angry about the uh, the Elijah Wood adaptation of uh, was he Huckleberry Finn <laughs> or Tom Sawyer? Oh, he was Huck Finn. Yeah, okay, yeah. You, do you think there are <laughs> you just like, blew my mind, dude? <laughs> like die hard Mark Twain fans that are like screw that movie and screw everybody that was involved with it. Like I've never watched another Elijah Wood film ever. Yes. <laughs> One hundred percent. There's there's somebody from Hannibal, Missouri, that feels just that way. I don't know, man. Like people got all out of sorts with Tolkien's stuff and with, uh, you know, Harry Potter, like any of those yeah. other things. But the backlash. I mean, I think, and this is a conversation <laughs> for another day. I think part of that is part of the fandom. Like, I think that I think there are, I don't know. There's, there's differences in fandom. Yeah, no. we can we we can drop. We'll come back to that at some point. I don't know. We've how long have we recorded? Time, like two hours. Time has to be a two component hours. too, right? Or nobody reads Robert E. Howard for high school English literature, American literature class. So like Huck Finn is boring to them. That's a whole yes. That I agree yes. with Luke. That's another episode. Sorry, we, we can we can do this. In the, I mean, let's get back I, on I the guess path. It's yeah, yeah. So <clears throat> where do we go next? Uh, where do we go next? Are we we are headed towards the progression. Ooh. What is that? It features that. the spears of Klontarf. Mm. Oh, cool. Progressing towards the Grey God Passes yeah. and the Cairn on the Headland. Oh, man. Nice. John. So, they'll be fine, man. John, you're going to get to talk about some mythology. Ooh, I'm going to study up. On Odin? Odin? Yeah. Cairns? Cairns? Grey? How do you spell it? A Y E Y. Who? What do you? What do you like? Do you, what do you how, think? What do you guys think? How do you when you when you write down the word gray? Is it A Y or E Y? I think I'm an E Y kind of guy. I like the E Y. It's more esoteric. <laughs> it's, it's English. Ye olde yeah. English. <laughs> yeah. I'm excited, man. We get to read some scary stuff again and come back to a to a like a horror story kind of. Kind of thing. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that. Our yeah. horror head Luke is, is excited. Yeah. I do like the horror, man. Maybe you'll get to – will Midsummer have been out by then? Midsummer. Uh, probably not. Man, I'm excited right. about that. Like you want to talk about like somebody that's not <laughs> just like adapting stuff. The the guy that that did uh, Hereditary and is now doing that movie Midsummer. he's – He's doing his own thing, man. That's yeah. that like that's you know, and so case in point, you know, that's the that's the horror that really like Jimmy's my jangles and jostles my jollies. Like that's the stuff that gets me excited, right? Uh Russell's your Jimmy's. It it really like those types of stories, it's like holy moly, I can make comparisons to like a a Roman Polanski movie, or I can make comparisons to uh, a, a Friedrich or a Friedkin movie, like, but you don't. You're not having a conversation about a property. You're having conversations about the same big themes and the same big character types. Like, yeah, man, bring me, bring me more of. A, I'm ready for Midsummer. That's going to be a, a, a weirdo. I mean, maybe it's going to be just too much for me. <laughs> I don't know, but yeah, I'm I'm excited to get into. Uh, some Howard horror again. That'll be fun. Yeah. 
So join us next time. <laughs> are are you uh, are you making your voice husky to mask? <laughs> no, I've had too much voice. Elijah Craig. This is just what I sound like now. Oh, you're Batman. I, I'm Batman. Well, tell the people where they can find us. Whoa, no, that's that is absolutely your job. Oh, I thought you were driving the bus. It's uh, thecromcast.blogspot.com. They can email us thecromcast at gmail.com. They can call us. That's 859-429-CROM. They can find us on Facebook or Twitter. We're at thecromcast. And I think that's the – oh, no, we're on Instagram. We haven't posted on there in a while. We're going to post some pirates there just like in mere moments. (laughs) Although I did get a notification email that someone had logged on from Lexington, Kentucky, and it was not me. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) So – I don't know who it could be, but I feel like they're in this room. It was this guy. <laughs> it, it was a ghost. This, this is like a Hercule Poirot mystery. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. The Instagram instigator. Yeah, the Instagram on the Orient Express. <laughs> and a little bit further down the road to revisions, you can find us on the headland in Ireland. Top of the evening to you. Looking through Cairns. <laughs> Bye-bye. So long. Au revoir! Yo ho!
I was waiting for some sort of transition or something. That's I didn't want to. I didn't want to. That's it. That's the transition. <laughs> get, get me out of here. Get me out of here. Get me out of here, Gene. I'm ready to go now. 